Self-reliance can be a fatal side effect of success. Don't get me wrong. Success is a good thing. We want successful graduates, teachers, lawyers, doctors, businessmen, and businesswomen. We applaud the achievements of success when it comes to the realms of medicine and technology and science. We long for successful marriages, husbands and wives and families, parents and children. We long for people to be successful. Let it be known that self-reliance can be a fatal side effect of success. In the words of my grandmother, there are times when you can get too big for your britches. You can be successful and then you can think that you are a self-made man or a self-made woman. You can become self-absorbed, self-confident, self-reliant. Self-reliance can be a fatal side effect of success. I think that's true in life. I think it's also true in the church. This morning, we come to the seventh of the letters written by Jesus in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. He writes to the church at Laodicea. The Laodiceans were independent and dangerous. If you have your Bible, I invite you to take it and turn. Revelation chapter 3, I'll be reading verses 14 to 22 once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Revelation chapter 3, let's begin at verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I've acquired wealth, I don't need a thing. But you do not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the very Word of God. And thanks be to the Lord. You may be seated. The city of Laodicea was founded in 253 B.C. About 120 years later, it became a province of the Roman Empire. It was known as a textile town. The city of Laodicea exported black wool all over the Roman Empire. The people living in Laodicea were extremely wealthy. Because of that, there was one of the best banking systems in all of Asia Minor located right there in the city of Laodicea. 
The city also boasted a school of medicine. In that school of medicine was invented a salve, an ointment, that could be placed on the eye. They claimed that it would even restore sight. Laodicea was, in some ways, like the city of Philadelphia. You may recall last week that as we visited Philadelphia, we made the comment that it was a place where earthquakes rumbled. The city of Laodicea was also susceptible to earthquakes. In 60 AD, there was such a severe earthquake that it shook that town all the way to its foundation. Unlike the people of Philadelphia, who had to depend on the governmental subsidies from the Roman Empire to rebuild their walls, buildings, homes, and community, the people of Laodicea did not need any help from the Roman government. They had enough wealth. They had enough creativity. They had enough ingenuity. They could do it themselves. They didn't need anybody else's help. It wasn't that they were anti-government or less than patriotic. They just didn't want to be indebted to anybody else. So they rebuilt their own town. There was a great sense of satisfaction. There was a great sense of confidence. There was a great sense of self-reliance. The people of Laodicea didn't need anything or anyone because they had everything that life could offer them. I suspect that demeanor of the culture infiltrated the church. You know, the church is here to impact the culture, but nine times out of ten, it's the culture that seems to impact the church, such as the case at Laodicea. I think the people there in that church, they were very self-absorbed, overconfident, self-reliant. So Jesus has a word to say to them. Jesus speaks to this overconfident church, and he calls himself the Amen, the faithful, true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Now, for Jesus to call himself the Amen is to say that he is the authority. You and I say Amen after we get done praying, don't we? Some people say amen when the preacher says something that they really agree with. But for most of us, we think it's a pretty good tagline just to put on the end of a prayer. Jesus used the word amen frequently in his ministry. Oftentimes he would say something and he wanted the people to know that what I'm about to say comes with the authority of God himself. So he would say, as it is in your translation, truly, truly, I say unto you. Some interpretations render it, verily, verily, I say unto you. The actual word is amen, amen. As Jesus is speaking, he is saying, what I'm proclaiming is the very word of God. So Jesus is telling the church at Laodicea that he is the one with all authority who speaks. After all, you remember after the resurrection, it is Jesus who says, now all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. So Jesus is the one who embodies the authority of the word of God. He is the faithful witness. He is comparing himself to the people at Laodicea. They are the fickle witnesses. At best, they're fickle. But Jesus is constantly faithful. And Jesus calls himself the ruler of God's creation. What he's telling that church is that he has sovereign jurisdiction over every place on the planet. He is the ruler. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Whether you believe in him or not, whether you live for him or not, that doesn't matter because he is still the sovereign savior of the world. He doesn't rise and fall on the popular public opinion of various places, towns, regions, and provinces, and even people. He is the sovereign savior. 
So maybe, maybe the church at Laodicea had heard about Paul's letter to the neighboring town from the Colossian church. You remember the letter to the Colossians, it's written to proclaim the ultimate supremacy of Christ. Paul says that he being Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things are made, whether in heaven and on earth, whether visible or invisible, rulers, powers, dominions, authorities, all things are made by him and for him. He is sovereign. Maybe that message traveled a few miles from Colossae to Laodicea. Regardless, Jesus is telling the church that if anybody has a word to speak to an overconfident congregation, it is Jesus himself. He is the authority. He's the amen. He is the faithful witness of God. And he is the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, Jesus says. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were one or the other, Jesus says. But you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. So because of that, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. There's been more than one person who's tried to interpret the words of Jesus when it comes to these verses. What does Jesus mean when he says that comparing them to hot or cold or lukewarm? More than one individual has said that Jesus is using this to gauge the spiritual temperature of the individuals and the church. If they're hot, that means they're on fire for the Lord. If they're cold, then they are spiritually frigid. And I understand that analogy. I I, I get that. But I don't think that's what Jesus is doing. I don't think Jesus is using this analogy to measure or gauge the spiritual temperature of the congregation. If he was doing that, then it stands to reason that he would want lukewarm Christians more than cold Christians. Because lukewarm Christians at least have some degree of warmth to them. But he says, I would rather you be either hot or cold. But because you're in the middle, because you're lukewarm, I'm about to spew you out of my mouth. So I don't think that he is gauging the spiritual temperature of the church. How hot on fire for the Lord are you? How frigidly cold are you towards Christ? Well, if he's not gauging the spiritual temperature, what's he doing? I think that he's using this analogy to measure the spiritual usefulness of the church. The best way for us to understand the words of Jesus is to realize that he is comparing them to the water supply of Laodicea. That ancient city had everything but one thing. They were not near a good source of water. That may not mean a whole lot to you. I mean, we live in this day and time. Technology has been so advanced. You don't have to live near a pond or a lake or a river in order to get water. You can live in a a big city and still have access to water. But in the ancient world, if you did not live near a good source of water, then your life would be cut short drastically quickly. So uh, Jesus is acknowledging that the people of Laodicea, they were not privileged to a water supply that was nearby. Now, that would be the demise of most towns, but not the people of Laodicea. They're wealthy. They're smart, they're ingenious, they're crafty, they're self-reliant. They know that just a few miles north in a city called Hierapolis, that city is known for its hot 
water springs. They also know that just a few more miles to the east in their neighboring town of the Colossians, that there in Colossae, there is a a water that is known worldwide for, for the fact that it is pure, cold drinking water. Now, you understand that you need both hot water and cold water. There are times when your body is so stiff, so achy, your muscles are so filled with pain that there's nothing like getting into a hot shower. It loosens the joints. It it loosens the muscles. You like to be able to have that hot piping water come down upon your body. You know the value of hot water. You also know the value of cold water. After a long day out in a sweltering hot Alabamian sun, there's nothing that quenches your thirst better than to walk inside and get a tall glass of cold water. It is refreshing. So you know the value of cold water and hot water. That's not part and parcel with you. That is true of all people. All people need hot water and cold water. The people of Laodicea said, we can go a few miles north and we can pipe in some of that hot water. We can go a few more miles to the east and pipe in some of that cold water. So they hired a construction team and they built aqueducts. And these aqueducts traveled some four miles, some eight to ten miles, four miles to Hierapolis, and they piped in the hot water. And then they went a few miles to the east, and they piped in cold water. They were crafty. They were self-reliant. But there was a problem. If you pipe in hot water multiple miles, what happens to that water? It's not as hot as it needs to be. It becomes lukewarm. If you pipe in cold water, what happens to the cold water? It's not as cold and refreshing as it needs to be or you want it to be. It kind of becomes lukewarm. And so by the time the water from either water source arrived in the city of Laodicea, that water, all of it, was pretty much lukewarm at best. And because it had to travel through these pipes, there were various chlorides and calcium deposits that developed. And people quickly understood that they had to do something to the water in order to use the water. For if they drank that lukewarm water, it would make them sick at their stomach. And they would throw up. They would vomit. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, yours is not a therapeutic ministry, like hot water. Yours is not a refreshing ministry, like cold water. What you produce in your life, in your church, what you produce is nothing more than lukewarm water. It is useless Christianity. And Jesus says it is lukewarm, it is useless, it really serves no purpose, it doesn't help you, it doesn't help anybody else, there's no therapeutic nature to it, there's no refreshing nature to it, it doesn't help anybody in the church or outside the church, and Jesus says it's pretty much useless to me. So it's lukewarm. And I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. I don't want to be too graphic, but Jesus was, so I will be. The word lukewarm literally means that unpleasant taste, that metallic taste that comes into your mouth right before you're about to blow chunks. (laughs) If you have a gag reflex, don't think about that too long. But that's exactly what the word lukewarm means. It's that unpleasant, nasty taste. You know when you're about to get sick, you feel it in your stomach, and then something happens in your mouth, and you know it's about to, and Jesus describes it as that unpleasant taste, lukewarm. It is useless. It causes Jesus to to vomit. The the word spew literally means to vomit. He says, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Why? Because you're useless to me. 
useless Christianity. Have you ever stopped to ask yourself, what would cause Jesus to get sick at his stomach? What would cause the Savior to get nauseated? If you've ever thought about that, the answer may be something like this. Well, it could be that Jesus would get sick at his stomach as he looked at the vicious crimes of our culture, the brutal murder, vicious rape, child abuse, social injustice. You think to yourself, when God looks upon those things, it must make him sick at his stomach. It must make his stomach churn. Probably even makes him want to vomit. You could be right. But the only thing I know of in the Bible that makes Jesus nauseated is useless Christianity. According to Revelation chapter 3, the only thing that where Jesus says, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth, is when he's looking at this church that is overconfident, independent, but dangerous, self-absorbed, self-reliant. He says of them, you're not living for me. You're not on mission for me. You don't know me. You claim to know me, but you don't. It is useless Christianity. About to spit you out of my mouth. It's the teenager who is quite satisfied with partial obedience. Not real committed obedience to Christ, but just partial obedience. Even though that teenager understands that I've had numerous opportunities to engage in worship and service and ministry and mission, yet I don't want to be too fanatical about this thing called Christianity. I don't want to get too crazy about Christ, so I'll just be partially obedient. It's the young adult. She's well-educated. She has a great job. She's married to an awesome guy. He's gainfully employed with a tremendous income. They're living the dream. I mean, they've got the 2.5 children, the dog, and the white picket fence. They've got it all. And she would tell you, I don't reject Jesus. I just don't make too much of him. I'm a Christian And I I think about him some. I I pray to him when I need something. But right now, we got it. Most of our problems, we can handle ourselves. We're paying our bills. We can take care of the issues that come along our way. But if anything gets big, if anything gets crazy, if anything gets overwhelming, then I know I can go to Christ. It's not that I reject him. It's just that I don't rejoice in him all that much. Oh, we come to church. We go to church just about as much as anybody else. We go once a month, twice a month, but we've got other things to do. We've got some ball teams. We've got some vacation. And sometimes we're just dead dog tired and we just can't get up. We got to rest. So we go to Bedside Baptist sometimes, but it's all right. Because when it's convenient, we're always there. It's the middle-aged man who regards God as one of the bottom lines of his financial portfolio. Oh, he's religious. He has a form of Christianity, but really it's just fire insurance. He has covered all the contingencies of life. He's covered everything and every possible scenario, so he's got enough God in his life just to cover the after-death policy. Just to make sure everything's all right and 
trying his best to dot all of his I's and cross all of his T's. He shows up occasionally and he serves uh, sometimes, but it's just working the financial portfolio just to make all the contingency plans good. It's a senior adult who says, listen, I've been there, I've done that. I've served, I've worked. It's time for me just to lay low. Listen, I don't want to do anything else. I don't want to serve. I don't want to minister. I don't want to go on mission. I don't want to do any of that. I just, listen, I, I, it's not that I reject Jesus. It's not that I've lost my faith. I, yeah, I just, I just, it's not that big of a deal anymore. I got enough God to be fine. And I think Jesus says of that, that's lukewarm Christianity. He's not gauging our spiritual temperature. He's gauging our spiritual usefulness. And he says, because of that, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. About to vomit you. The people of Laodicea said to him, Jesus, we've got our wealth. We don't need anything. We've got it covered. We're okay. We don't need a thing. We are self-reliant, successful people. We've got it. When we need you, Jesus, we will come calling. But if you don't hear from us, all things are fine. We're okay. We are self-reliant. Jesus says, you don't even know that you're wretched and pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Wretched and pitiful? How can you say that, Jesus? How can you say that we are wretched and pitiful? I mean, we've got buildings and budgets. And when we get together, we got nickels and noses. We got people that show up and they give some of their money. We meet our budget. We build buildings. What are you talking about? We're wretched and pitiful. Jesus, have you looked around at all we've constructed for you? Have you looked around at all the things that we've done for you? Oh, Jesus, we've got people and programs. We've got uh, musicals and ministries. Jesus, we've got everything that life could offer. How can you call us wretched and pitiful? Is John R.W. Stott. As he looks at this passage, he says, of all the letters of the seven churches, perhaps this is the one that most indicts the Western church of the 21st century. Because John O.W. Stott says, and I quote, the version of Christianity that we have created is something that is nominal, superficial, shallow. We have created a religion that is flabby and anemic, end of quote. Jesus says to the church, you are poor, you're naked, and you're blind. How could Jesus say that? The people at Laodicea would have bristled up. You may be bristling up inside, I don't know. But the people at Laodicea would have said, how can you say that we are poor? We've got all the money that we could ever have. We have more money than month. Because of our excess money, we've got one of the best banking systems in all of Asia Minor. So we have built places to store our money and gain interest on our money. How can you say that we are poor? Jesus says, you need to purchase some gold from me that's refined in the fire. Jesus says, your, your bank account's in good shape, but you don't realize that you are spiritually bankrupt. And it's only when you and I understand that we are poor in spirit that we can have the kingdom of God. Jesus tells us, tells the church, 
You need to purchase from me gold that's refined in the fire. That refining process is called smelting. It's taking a glob of metal, subjecting it to intense heat. That heat causes the impurities to rise to the top. An instrument is used to scrape away the impurities. What's left behind is the pure, precious metal. This is what Job had in mind when he said, when God gets done with me, I will come forth as pure gold. Because God is refining me. I need the Lord. I need thee. Oh, I need thee. Every hour, I need thee. So bless me now, my Savior, because I come to thee. For I am a servant of God, not gold. For my master is the Messiah, not money. It's hard to tell rich people that they're poor. This is a hard sell for Jesus. I mean, let's just think about it. Let's just be honest. It's hard to tell rich people that they're poor. And you do know, by the way, you're some of the richest people on the planet because we have been blessed to be here in this country at this time in human history. Comparatively speaking, we are blessed out the wazoo. That's a theological statement right there. That's a, that's a Greek word, wazoo. We are tremendously blessed. It's hard to tell rich people that they're poor. That's what Jesus says, though. You have money, but you don't have the Messiah. You have currency, but you don't have Christ. He also tells them that they are shamefully naked. How can you say I'm shamefully naked? Because after all, this is a textile town. This is a town that's known for its black wool. It was exported all throughout the Roman Empire. And some of it was quite luxurious and expensive. And Jesus is telling the church, listen, you can walk up and down the street dressed to the nines and still be naked before God. The men can wear Armani suits. The women can wear Dior dresses and still be shamefully naked before the Lord. So Jesus says, you need to wear a white robe that I will provide. White, that imagery of purity, that, that robe of righteousness that only Christ can give so that we don't stand before God by our own merits and by our own works, trying to do more good than bad, hopefully tipping the scales in our favor so that God will be obliged to let us into his kingdom. Oh no, we can't do enough good. We've got to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ so that when God looks at me and when God looks at you, he sees the innocent declared righteousness of the accomplished works of Jesus Christ draped all over us. So we are dressed in his robe of righteousness, not our own. Jesus tells the church that you're dressed but naked. It's hard to tell people who have closets full of clothing and shoes you don't have the proper attire. What are you talking about? I've got a closet full of clothes and shoes. What are you talking about? I don't have the proper attire. And Jesus says, you're not clothed in my righteousness. He tells them that they're blind. They can't see. Jesus, we can see. In fact, if we have trouble with our sight, we can go to one of our schools of medicine right here on Laodicea. They even have an ointment that can be placed on the eye, a salve that can help us to see. It can actually restore sight. We're becoming like our own God. We can heal. We can restore. We can help. God, if we need you, we'll let you know. But we're okay. How can you say we can't see? And Jesus says, oh, no, physically, you got 20-20 vision. But spiritually, you're blind as a bat. You can't see your spiritual hand in front of your face. And you definitely can't see the spiritual hand of Christ in front of your life. Spiritually blind. 
He says, you come to me and I will open up your eyes unto my salvation. You know, nobody can be saved unless Jesus opens their eyes. I'm not talking about physical sight. I'm talking about spiritual sight. And only Jesus can do that. There's nothing inside of you that can force yourself to be saved. I mean, you willfully come to that decision, but it is God by the power of his Holy Spirit that's opened up your eyes unto his salvation. And you say, hey, I need thee. Oh, I'm a desperate sinner and I need the salvation of Jesus. Do you know the name Fanny Crosby? Fanny Crosby is a hymn writer, was a hymn writer. I don't know, maybe she's still writing hymns. She was physically blind. She couldn't physically see. Yet one of her lines of her famous song says, perfect submission, perfect delight, visions of rapture now burst on my sight. Angels descending bring from above echoes of mercy, whispers of love. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story and this is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. How can a woman who is blind as a bat can say, I see visions of rapture bursting on my sight. How can she say that? Well, she may physically be blind, but spiritually she can see perfectly because God had opened her eyes. What is Jesus saying to the church? He's saying you need to be desperately dependent upon me. I know you've got some money. But in a moment, all that money could be gone. I know you've got things. You've got clothes. You've got luxurious wealth. In a moment, all that could be gone. You think you can see but you can't. You're blind. So you come to me and I'll give you gold refined in fire. You come to me, I'll give you white robes of righteousness to wear. You come to me and I will open up your eyes into my salvation. What is Jesus telling the church? Jesus is telling the church, I want, I want you to be desperately dependent upon me for all manners of living, all manners of life and death. I want you to be desperately dependent upon me. Be successful, Jesus says, but don't be self-reliant. Because self-reliance can't be a fatal side effect of success. You be as successful as you possibly can. I pray that you'll be successful in every endeavor of your life. Not just for graduates, but anyone listening to my voice. I want you to be as successful as you possibly can in every field in which you endeavor. But just be cautious. Because in that success, you can become self-reliant. And self-reliant can be a fatal side effect of success. So what do you do? Jesus says to repent. The same thing he's been telling the church in all seven letters, he says to the church at Laodicea, repent. It means to do a 180. It means to turn your back on your sin. It means to turn towards the Savior and trust in him. Repent. The best thing Jesus says is that I discipline those that I love. What he's telling the church is, I love you. And because I love you, I am telling you these things. Because I love you, I'm disciplining you. So I love you, so repent. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. If you've been in very many churches along the way, if you've gone to very many um, revival meetings, like you, I've heard more than one evangelistic sermon based on this one verse. I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone 
hears my voice and opens the door. I will come in and eat with him. And he with me. Jesus is standing at the door of your hearts. Open the door and receive him. Now, my friends, I get that. I understand that. I believe that. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's not standing necessarily at the door of the heart. He's standing at the door of the church. He's on the outside looking in. He's standing outside the church of Laodicea and he's knocking on the door and he's saying, hey, will anybody open the door? Is there a preacher that will open the door? Is there a deacon that will open the door? Is there a song leader that will open the door? Is there a church member that will open the door? I stand at the door and I knock. Will anybody let me in? And if you interview the people of Laodicea, they would say, Jesus is front and center in our church. They would say, Jesus is on center stage. He is the object of our affection. Oh, we worship him and we serve him only when it's convenient, but we serve him only. And Jesus would say, I'm on the outside looking in. Jesus had left the building. That caused me to ask the question, I wonder if Jesus left the building, how long would it take us to notice I mean, if Jesus was on the outside looking in, how long could we live life as usual? How long could we go along and get along? How long could we still preach sermons? How long could we still worship? How long could we still sing songs? How long could we still gather uh, on Sunday? How long could we go if Jesus was on the outside of the building? How long could we do that? If Jesus was on the outside, how long could we keep on doing this church thing? Apparently quite a long time. I don't know how long it had been for Laodicea. But I suspect it had been some time where Jesus was on the outside looking in. And what he's telling you, what he's telling me, what he's telling the church is Jesus is saying, I want to be center stage. I have to be center stage. I've got to be the object of your thoughts, affection, Activity, I've got to be in the center of that. Why? Because he's the amen. He's the faithful witness. He is the ruler of creation. He should be there. He, he, he ought to be there. He's the only one who can be there. So Jesus says, repent. If you hear my knock, open the door and I will come in. To him overcomes, Jesus says, I will give the right for you to sit on my throne just as I sit on my Father's throne. Jesus constantly, throughout all seven letters, has been talking about to him overcomes, to him overcomes, to him overcomes. In 1 John, the overcomer is the one who knows that Jesus is the Son of God. In all seven letters, Jesus is telling the church, I long for you to be an overcomer. I long for you to know who I am and to live wholeheartedly for me. So in Ephesus, he said the one who overcomes is the one who remembers his or her first love and starts doing the things that they did at first. In Smyrna, the one who overcomes is the one who understands that suffering has a shelf life and that faithfulness is forced in the furnace of adversity. Jesus says to the overcomers in Pergamum, look, I know that you're in hell's headquarters. I know you've got persecution on the outside and moral decay on the inside, but do not compromise to the overcomers in Thyatira. He says, listen, one day I'm gonna peel back the clouds and I'm coming soon and until I come, hold on to what you have. To the people of Sardis, Jesus says, those overcome are 
or those who have not soiled their garments, pooped in their pampers, those who have defiled themselves with immoral living, to those in Philadelphia, those overcomers of those who know the faithful and true Christ and who hold on to him and know the promises that God has given him. And here in Laodicea, Jesus says, the one who overcomes is the one who's going to rule and reign with me. Because church, I'm telling you, one day Jesus will split the eastern sky. And one day Jesus will come. He will mount his white horse. He will come as the king of kings, lord of lords. He'll be warrior, faithful and true. And he will come and set up shop both now and forevermore. Jesus is coming. The purpose of revelation is to communicate that Christ wins. Christ wins. Christ wins. And if you're with Christ, you're on the winning side. So I don't know how else to end this series than just to communicate a song that's in my heart. You've heard me say it numerous times. I serve a risen Savior, and he's in the world today, and I know that he is living, whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy, and I hear his voice of cheer, and just the time I need him, he's always near. He lives, he lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me, and he talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives. Salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. I came to tell you this morning, Christ wins. Christ wins. I want you to be successful in all things, but in all things, do not become self-reliant. Do not be independent and dangerous, but be dependent on Christ and holy in his sight. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. If there's anyone here who does not know you as Savior and Lord, I pray that today is the day of salvation. If there are any Laodiceans in this congregation, Lord, will you please, please this day, help us to repent. Oh Lord, help us not to be self-absorbed, arrogant, self-righteous, self-reliant people. Help us to be so dependent upon you that as you speak, we follow. May your altar be full. Hear our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen.